Hello, I'm Sofia Stoyanovich. Welcome to American Stories, a podcast series that celebrates American concert music as a mirror to the stories of people living in our country today. I'm a violinist, and I'm speaking to you from Bainbridge Island, Washington. Hello, listeners. I'm pianist Derek Wang, joining you from Needham, Massachusetts. Sophia and I are your co-hosts, and we're thrilled that you're here with us for our first episode, a tribute to moms on the front lines of COVID-19 in honor of both Mother's Day and International Nurses' Day this week. To all moms listening, we hope you had a beautiful Mother's Day. And to all the nurses and healthcare professionals working right now, in hearing your stories for this podcast, we were moved by your personal dedication and courage. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Today, we're featuring a work for violin and piano by William Grant Still, entitled Mother and Child. Still was a musical icon of the Harlem Renaissance, who broke color barriers as a pioneering composer and conductor. At the end of the episode, we'll introduce our performance of Mother and Child, recorded remotely from our homes for this episode. But first, we're delighted to share the stories of two inspiring women, Mari Pasco and Agnes Garfield, both of whom are mothers and healthcare workers in New York City today. Mari recently tested positive for the coronavirus and spoke to us from her home as she was completing her recovery. As a midwife, Mari has a unique and intimate perspective on the beginnings of motherhood. Agnes Garfield is a nurse practitioner and new mother herself, who had just returned to work after giving birth when the crisis hit. Agnes graciously spoke to us while balancing the duties of having a pandemic at large with having a baby at home. All this to come on American Stories. We're so glad you're here. Welcome again to American Stories. This is Derek Wang with my co-host, Sofia Stoyanovich. It's fitting that we're beginning American Stories with an episode focused on motherhood, not only in celebration of Mother's Day this week, but because the relationship between mother and child is the very first one that we experience. Mother and child is also the beginning of storytelling, as our mothers are often the first to teach us the stories we hold dear, whether from folklore or picture books from family history or imagination. Some of these stories are passed down through generations. Many come to shape who we are. Motherhood itself has a richness of stories, from the anticipation and wonder of new birth to the tender care and tireless love, as well as the sacrifice and hard work that we'll encounter in today's stories. Agnes Garfield is a nurse practitioner in New York City who's just celebrated her very first Mother's Day as a new mom. Sophia and I spoke with her in a rare moment between her work at the hospital and taking care of her baby. It is my first Mother's Day. <laughs> it's actually unreal. Um, so I'm a new mom. My baby's about six months old now. And this isn't exactly how I imagined celebrating Mother's Day. Uh, but it's as good as any to be home and with my family. We wanted to hear what it's been like for Agnes to be a new mom while working as a nurse on the front lines of COVID-19. 
it's difficult to certainly balance the the home life and work life when you're in medicine during this pandemic. What can I say? I think that anyone who really has a passion for medicine, for people, for care, understand that this is a time where you have to sacrifice and negotiate what how you divide your time. And I think that a lot of people are giving a lot of their time to their work right now. I mean, I speak to pediatricians who are on ICU floors. I speak to dermatologists who have never had to place an order for medication, who are on the front lines and doing what they can to serve our, our community and our people. And nurses, um, all the staff are really going above and beyond Mm -hmm. at all times and doing things they're not comfortable with and not really well trained to deal with um, just to deal with the emergencies that are there at the moment. What was it like when people started realizing that the situation was serious? Could you talk us through the atmosphere? It must have been very stressful. Sure. Um, I don't think anyone really had a time to process what was going on. I think things just were suddenly starting to get harder. The amount of people that were coming in, the uh, symptoms that were starting to present more frequently and consistent, at least from my perspective, it seemed that really we had no clue what we were dealing with, but that it was happening and happening fast and all everyone could do at all times was try to catch up especially when when we were at the peak of pandemic spread the number of people who were coming in and the workload and the understaffing um everyone was just working their hardest to be a, t a step or two behind. <laughs> it was powerful to hear Agnes tell us how the pandemic has highlighted the values of generosity and putting others first, with which she wants to bring up her son. So when I'm not at work <laughs> and I'm on the line at the supermarket, at Target, uh, doing what we have to do to keep our family clothed and fed, I, it's a little scary to see what this pandemic is bringing out of people and the desperation that people who aren't really sick um, are experiencing because they're unemployed, because they're uh, really portioning out their meals, because they have to think for themselves and not the whole. Um, and when I see that, it inspires me to want to instill the opposite in my child. And it's making me really think about the human he's going to be and what role he will play if this broke out when he's conscious enough to have uh, a say in what he does and, what he, and how he treats people. While surreal scenes of empty shelves in stores and long lines at food banks play on outside, 
Agnes and her little boy still get to experience those small moments of wonder at home that become precious memories. Yesterday, he, I put him in his crib where I usually put him when I need to go uh, turn off the stove or uh, pick up something on the floor that I don't want him to eat. And I stepped back into the room and he was standing, grabbing onto the edge, looking over the edge. And it was the first time I saw him pull himself up to standing. And now that's all he does. Oh, wow. (laughs) It's, It's just every minute it's it's almost it's almost like what it's like to be in an inpatient setting where you have no clue what's gonna happen Mm -hmm. and it happens quickly um except this time it's bringing a smile to your face he always has this fussy period at night when it's time to go to bed it takes about half an hour to kind of soothe him and the way we do it is by kind of dancing with him and he's fascinated by the shadows that are on the wall and so I come up with these silly songs to soothe him to sleep and we kind of swing I would say we dance what is surprising to me about motherhood is that the energy that you have and that you have to have, it comes from somewhere. I have no clue where because I'm definitely sleep deprived. Um, But 7 a.m., he's up, I'm up, we're giggling. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, He naps, I I work. Um, Mm -hmm. It's time for him to go to bed. I need one minute to just kind of read a book or talk to my partner and, and... wind down and then it seems like somehow you just get the energy from somewhere when it's time that's probably been the most surprising thing for me about being a mom nevertheless the current measures of social distancing affect how agnes can care for her child's growth one of the biggest challenges is that he doesn't get to interact with anyone besides us um maybe when we go out for an occasional walk I try to point out people or have him try to wave. Um, uh, We limit the screen time, so I don't want him staring at a phone uh, to to associate a screen with a human being. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's kind of the only way that we can introduce him to being social right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. He's curious. I mean, he's, he, he wants to play and he wants to interact and he wants to study faces. And I think mommy and daddy's faces are a bit boring right now. <laughs> now that she's a mother herself, Agnes describes feeling an even deeper appreciation for her own mother, who raised seven children. I have no clue how my mother had the, the ability to dispense as much love as she did because I don't know how I do it with with more than one child and she did it with seven and on her own uh and she I mean she's from Honduras so I'm a child of a of a mom who crossed the border crossed the river um put her kids on her back and has made a living for herself and given us the opportunity to to establish a life here. 
So every Mother's Day has been special for us. It's, it's really an American holiday that isn't, uh, it's not a big deal for a lot of people in, in other countries, but I think that here, because we understand the sacrifices our mom as in my family's mom has made, um, we try to make it special and, and make it an opportunity to give thanks. I have the image in my head, you know, as New York's been doing up at seven, everyone claps and salutes all of the workers who are putting their uh, lives on the line for everyone else. I've heard from friends I have in the city their experience trying to just clap and acknowledge a few people. Um, but what's it like being on the other end of that, seeing this response? So I think in general, it's a very New York and maybe even a Hispanic thing to be loud and celebratory. <laughs> and for, for me, seven o'clock, is usually when my baby's trying to nap. So oh. we get firecrackers and we get people yelling and I have to make sure the window is closed at that time or he's, mm -hmm. <laughs> he's mm -hmm. awake and, and um, surprised by the bombardment of noise. So it's mm -hmm. fun uh -huh. and funny. Um, but it's, it's one thing that I think people have an opportunity to be communal about right now. Not mm -hmm. then we don't have many opportunities to join in in harmony with anything mm -hmm. during quarantine. Yeah. It seemed like a quintessential and beautiful picture of a neighborhood in New York City during this time. Firecrackers going off as a baby tries to nap. Celebration and isolation in the same frame. We asked Agnes, what would she like to see celebrated in our national community? Well, I think this country is the country of immigrants. <laughs> um, I think the most American thing is being from somewhere else, unless you are native to this country. Mm -hmm. And um, not to say that it's, it's easy to be an immigrant. I think one of the, the hardest things for me about this pandemic is seeing how hard it's hit the immigrant community and how there are family members who are deceased who probably haven't been able to communicate um, probably have family members in other countries who have no clue that their families are gone because of this pandemic mm -hmm. um, but yeah I think I think being an American is is being diverse is being a country that adapts and moves with what is given and what is provided.
You're listening to American Stories. This is Sofia Stoyanovich with my co-host, Derek Wang. As a midwife working at a hospital in New York City, Mari Pasco guides women through the experience of having a child. She spoke to us about the guidance she provides to pregnant women as their emotional and physical identities transform to become mothers. But our first concern when we reached out to her on the phone was that she had recently tested positive for the coronavirus. So, Mari, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to American Stories. First of all, uh, we just wanted to ask how you're doing. We were both concerned to hear um, that you had been ill. Well, thank you for asking. Yes, I had COVID and I was exposed at work and was sick, very sick, much, much sicker than I expected. It's um, brought this whole time to focus a lot. I'm much, much better now. We were relieved to hear that Mari was feeling better, though it had been a long and trying recovery process. We asked her to talk us through it, starting from when she first began to feel unwell. I work in a very busy clinic. You know, I myself see about 100 patients a week, so I'm very busy. I see OB and GYN patients. So the first um, two weeks of the epidemic, we didn't have masks. And so I was exposed. My energy level was low and I started feeling bad. And it just got worse and worse for two weeks. Um, And I was um, started getting worried about the breathing part. And um, but I talked it through with my doctor and we were waiting to see because I really wanted to avoid going to the hospital if possible. It got scarier. And my kids, you know, I'm in my 60s, so it was I had the risk of age. But I said, I'm healthy. I jog. You know, I, I really played it down and felt like felt personally that I was going to do fine. But I'd never been sicker in my life, actually. And so it turned out to be much more difficult than I expected. And the recovery is really gradual. And so that's one of the things that has been difficult is because you kind of think you're going to bounce back and it just hasn't happened. As she reflected on a scary time for her, Mari brought up how she had to find an inner focus as she struggled with her severe symptoms. She struck me as both patient and persistent, simultaneously realistic and optimistic. When I was sick, I noticed that I was living in the moment in kind of the yogic sense that they talk about, you know, because I couldn't think about the future or the past, or it was just getting through that moment of feeling like I couldn't breathe. There's a certain internalness about when, when you're sick, that it's, um, is a very intense time. And in fact, I feel like now that I'm much, much better, um, I'm starting to have to deal with a sense of isolation more because before, before, I, I wasn't, couldn't think about anything else. I couldn't help but make a connection between the kind of inner strength Mari had to draw upon when she was sick and felt like she couldn't breathe, and the courage she helps women find as they go into labor. Hers isn't the stereotypical delivery room. I don't know if you've seen any videos of deliveries. A lot of times people are screaming, push, push. <laughs> and I usually have everybody in, in my delivery room be really quiet and I talk, I notice that my voice gets lower and it's more meditative kind of, and you can do this and, and help that situation calm the woman down, help her feel her own power so that she can do her delivery. And obviously now as a time of, of a lot of concern because of, of COVID, 
it's much harder because there's so many other external things happening. But at the moment of delivery, if you're able to just really focus on on yourself and, and how to get through this moment and your partner is there to help and support you, it, mm-hmm. it can work just great. For a period of time in March, women in New York City were unable to have their partner or support person in the delivery room with them, though the State Department of Health then overrode such regulations. Even so, the stress levels in the hospital continue to affect both patients and professionals. Mari told us about the incident that first alerted New York City obstetricians to the seriousness of the situation. Two women, healthy young women, came into the delivery room in labor and in the process of delivering um, became really symptomatic. Both needed to go to the intensive care after they delivered. They were asymptomatic until they were in labor and both found to be COVID positive. And that was a crisis moment where they realized, I heard a group phone call of 400 OB providers in all of New York City to say, we need to get a hold of this this crisis and uh, recognize that asymptomatic people can be carriers. And I think that was a, a changing point in their realization that everybody was a potential COVID person and a crisis in terms of realizing that they didn't have the equipment. Mari expressed frustration at the shortage of equipment that put so many healthcare workers like herself into immediate danger. They use a lot of war terminology. This is a war against the virus and stuff like that. And that a lot of healthcare providers feel like they've been used as cannon fodder, which is, you know, you're expendable, you're expendable, you're expendable. People who deliver food, expendable, expendable. Uh, people, People who are cleaning, people who are, you know, doing the very essential jobs are in some, um, in some way treated as expendable because they haven't been protected well enough. You feel like you're on the front line. They use that word too, like on the front line of the war. So many people have been exposed um, because they didn't have the equipment and not having the equipment and not having planning about it is, um, is something that is inexcusable. I found it moving to consider that for Mari, even while she was on the front lines of the current pandemic, it would have been unthinkable not to keep on going. Extraordinary courage was the only option, since her sense of mission is so strong. Ever since Mari was a young woman, she has held fast to a calling to serve disadvantaged communities. She mentions, for instance, her first job as a midwife in which she found it transformative to meet women who were courageously starting families despite their circumstances. My first job was in the Bronx and I worked in the city hospital, Jacoby Hospital. I started working in the age of AIDS, in the age of crack. It was a very difficult time in the city. There were a lot of epidemics and it was really um, important to me to be able to really focus with my patients on healthy behaviors, on supporting them from whatever point of view they they were bringing to me and to give them the best possible care, even though they were poor and often very marginalized women. I worked with a group of midwives and 
every day we were awed by the strength of the women that we took care of that despite all of the problems that they might have in terms of um, losing jobs or supporting their parents or having sick children that against all odds they worked really really hard to to create a safe and healthy environment for kids for the, their family and so it was awe-inspiring every single day so i really love that that was my first job Decades later, Maria is experienced in working with women who face difficult situations. Each woman's own emotional experience can affect her process of delivery, which she illustrated by telling us this story. I had a patient once who was having a lot of stresses with her partner, and I could tell that he wasn't supporting her in, in labor in the way that, that was useful for her. And so after a while, she was actually pushing. After a while, um, I said to him, you know, it's, it's um, you both are really tired. Why don't you go out and get a cup of coffee? And um, so he stepped out and in, in, in about three minutes, she told me that she was worried that having this baby would emotionally keep her from growing um, in her job. And that he felt that she should stay home because she was a new mother and she wanted to be able to be at home and work. And they had a big tension about this. And we talked about it and I said, and this is a really important issue and you're not gonna solve it right this minute. So why don't you just have the baby? And in a second, we, she had been pushing for 45 minutes or an hour and we weren't getting anywhere. The baby was really high. And in a second, I wasn't even ready the baby was born. She was holding back emotionally because she had a conflict that she mm -hmm. felt she didn't know how to resolve. And somehow not having the baby felt like she could maybe get control of it a little bit more. And when she kind of came to terms with what steps she had to take first to be able to do <laughs> it, she just had the baby. So those conflicts are really important and they can come out in labor, they can come out before. But the clearer you are emotionally, mm -hmm. sometimes you can work it through better. Because Mari works in such an emotionally charged environment in which she witnesses not only individual challenges, but systemic issues, we wanted to know how her professional life affects her personally and how she maintains a balance. So there is some level of cutting off and, and you know, separating, um, you know, not bringing everything home every single day. That's a really important part of, of being a professional is that you can't take it all in all the time because there are too many too many big issues you know that's what's overwhelming right now with the whole issue of covid i mean it's unfathomable that our city is going through and having so many deaths every single day and um and on some level you can't focus on all of those things every single day so i mean you, you you can't cry at every delivery, every baby that you deliver. <laughs> the tendency is to cry. <laughs> but it happens sometimes. Oh, absolutely. It's a miracle. I mean, sometimes um, a woman will say her partner isn't sure he wants to be there for the delivery. or he. And I said, oh, that's so common. Sometimes men are worried that they're going to vomit if they see blood or if there's, they're going to faint or they're going to somehow be embarrassed by the experience or... Um, and so I said, every person worries about that and just just 
remind them that there are a few times in the world that you get to see a miracle and having your own child be born is one of those miracles. And so, you know, there's a chair there. If he feels he has to sit down. I also say, you know, in the 35 years that I've been a midwife, I've never had a father faint. I almost did, but <laughs> I got him a chair fast enough. <laughs> she got him the chair fast enough. Thank you for listening to American Stories. I'm Sofia Stoyanovich with my co-host, Derek Wang. Coming up, we'll introduce the 20th century composer William Grant Still and his piece, Mother and Child, for violin and piano. The music you're hearing is by William Grant Still, the second movement of his suite for violin and piano, entitled Mother and Child, composed in 1943. You'll hear our complete performance of the piece at the end of the episode. Grant Still was born in Mississippi in 1895 and grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. After college, he landed in New York City just as the writers and artists of the Harlem Renaissance were flourishing. Still fit right into this movement, writing symphonic music in which he sought to give expression to African-American life. In 1934, Still moved to Los Angeles, where he lived until his death in 1978. He worked as an arranger and film composer in Hollywood. When he conducted the Los Angeles Philharmonic at the Hollywood Bowl in 1936, Still became the first black American to conduct a major orchestra. The same year, the Philadelphia Orchestra took his Afro-American Symphony on a national tour, and in 1949, his opera Troubled Island, a collaboration with Langston Hughes, was performed in New York. Still forged a powerful musical language by combining the sorrowful expression of the blues with the grandeur of romantic concert music. In other words, he developed distinctly African-American musical material through the structures and techniques of classical composition. But as a black composer, Still had to face the issue of how his musical identity would be perceived. Though he honed an African-American musical voice, he also wanted his works to be appreciated on their own terms by audiences and critics. Today, we honor Still's firsts as an African-American musician, just as we reflect on how his music continues to point the way forward to a still more inclusive and expansive musical America. Mother and Child compellingly addresses a universal theme through a particular lens. Its beauty draws on a familiar and comforting source of human experience, and yet its sadness is charged by the particular hardship of black families in the segregation era. William Grant Still chose the title Mother and Child in reference to the visual artist Sergeant Johnson, who produced many works with that title throughout his career. It's striking that Sergeant Johnson, who lost his mother as a teenager, returned to this theme over and over again. There was one mother and child chalk drawing which particularly captured our imagination. You'll find a link to the picture currently in the collection of the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art in the podcast description. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Sophia and I sat down to talk about how seeing the picture by Sergeant Johnson deepened our understanding of William Grant Still's emotional world. Sergeant Johnson's drawing is of a mother protecting her child from the outside world. Her body is physically doing everything it can to protect something which is small and vulnerable. Mother and child capture something relevant in the emotional experience that a lot of people are feeling right now. And it's a vulnerability and it's a desperate will to protect the things we love the most. And I think when things leave our control in some sense, or we think we have an understanding of how things work, even if it's, you know, not saying everyday life is fair, but we have an understanding of how things work, when that's removed, it makes everything incredibly fragile. And when we're fragile, it it takes away some part of our identity that you think is is there as a given. And so it's quite revealing in that way. To me, there's something in her expression which almost suggests that that, that we can't know all the answers. I, I think of what what Mari and Agnes, whose stories we heard today, um, I think of them just trying to process everything that's going on right now and realizing that it's too much and realizing that um, what we have in front of us, the, the task at hand, whether it's comforting a loved one, whether it's simply getting up and going to work, whether it's taking one more breath, that's all we can manage sometimes. And something about that feeling in the painting comes across to me throughout. itself in the middle section where it seems as though you know because the 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 opening of the piece is it could be a lullaby right it's so sweet it's so loving and then gradually we start to see some of the worry that's on the fringes of the picture and it sort of comes into focus and and then in the middle section something happens which is really quite different right right in the center of the piece we have a violin cadenza that sort of breaks forth. It's a breaking point where there's nothing left to say. It's just kind of angry that it's reached this point that things are so extreme that we had to crack from this form, this this relationship with the piano or the relationship with the outside world or whatever is going on. For me, what's really beautiful is that you have this outburst that you just said. And yet, as quickly as it comes, it just becomes enfolded again into the lulling music that had come before. And so you come out of this huge tumultuous world and immediately it's trying to instill a calm. 
you feel this like, okay, let's take our breath. Let's calm our heart. Let's take a moment in some ways. But the stirring is beneath there. There's sort of um, slight agitations which are going on. And so in that way, I think it's almost like an exercise in trying to find patience, which immediately follows afterwards. And um, eventually you hear the sincerity come back, the, the deeper faith, that love which speaks at the beginning of the piece because it does return. And when it does return, it feels much more sincere. And of course, you know, structurally, composition-wise, we've returned to the theme. Um, but I just think it's it's quite exposing and it's quite human what he's capturing. And I think that's why that's why it speaks. You're right that when we reemerge, when we hear the opening of the piece again, um, it, it sounds like we've never heard it before. We, we've heard it before, but we haven't because we haven't really heard it. It's like, it's like you, you, you meet someone for the first time, but you don't yet know something really important about them. And once they tell you once, or once it comes out, everything changes. You, you, you understand the surface deeper. And I think that's exactly what it's like when you listen to this, to mother and child all the way through. And so it's just so beautiful how you have the growth of that relationship just in the few minutes that it takes to play this piece. And that's something that's really, it's evergreen. Every time we play it, we re-experience that. Here is our complete performance of Mother and Child, recorded from our homes in Massachusetts and Washington State.
Thank you for listening to American Stories. Our theme music is excerpts from Charles Ives' fourth violin sonata, Children's Day at the Camp Meeting, recorded in a live performance in New York City in December 2019. We hope that wherever you're joining us from today, that you are safe and well and that you take care.